I'm just so excited about this series. And what you saw there in that video is why. And it's interesting because as I'm watching this, and, and she said, you know, how she dealt over there, saw how they dealt with demonic spirits and how, how that's very commonplace and everything else. We saw that in Africa. And, and it's very different when you go over to another country. We saw it a little bit in Mexico, but when we went to Africa, and as Gwen said, she saw it in India, it's, it's all over the place. There's spiritual warfare. We don't get that here. We don't understand that here. And the reason why I'm so passionate about this is because we need to get it. Just because we don't see it, just because we don't believe it's there, doesn't mean it's not there. Because it is. As a matter of fact, that's one of Satan's, I believe, one of his greatest achievements for the United States is to make us believe that we are just self-contained. That there is nothing going on outside of our understanding. And by the way, I'm not talking about the world. You kind of expect that from the world. I'm talking about the church. And hey, Lindsay, take a look at that. Something's going on with that there on the first one, on the Facebook Live one. But uh, so so it's it's amazing to me how when we walk throughout our lives as Christians and we wonder why things are going on and we can't figure out what in the world's going on and we never think of the fact that there is an opposition to us. So I am I am so incredibly excited about this. This uh, series and what God's going to do in this series, even in my own life. This is something that he has been showing us for, uh, for quite a while now. Specifically, Alex and I and, and a small group of us, he has been teaching for about the last eight months. And, and I think it's critical, it's critical to the church to understand this. Now, I'll say this too, and it, <laughs> this just cracks me up. Um, Alex and I were with some friends last night, and I was mentioning this to them. Um, you know how I've said before, oftentimes I, I don't really know exactly what the Lord has for me to give on a Sunday morning. You know, it's usually Saturday the night before, or, or it might even be that I don't know until I step up here. You know, I do my preparation in my own life. You know, I prepare every day in seeking him and in drawing close to him because he promised if I'm intimate with him, everything else works out. So I, I just believe him in that. And that's how it's been when I preach. So Saturday, sometimes Saturday or Sunday morning, I'll, I'll know and, and he'll just give it to me and, and he speaks and all that. This is different. He told me a couple of weeks ahead that you're going to be doing, I want you to do a series on spiritual warfare. And I used to think, man, Lord, why don't you tell me ahead of time what I'm going to do so I can prepare and, and kind of be ready and everything else. Now I know I like the other way better. <laughs> it's a lot of work to do it this way because I, I find myself, I mean, it's ridiculous. Normally I don't have notes. Now I have three pages of notes. And, and, and I'm, like, I'm like, Lord, there is so much information here that is so critical for people to get. I don't want them to miss anything. So God, please just, just focus my words on what you want them to be. So let's pray as we do this. Father in heaven, I pray this morning, Lord, that you focus, as I just said, focus my words on what you want each person to know and hear. God, this is such a critical, possibly beyond salvation, possibly the most critical thing that as a Christian we can understand. So Lord, I pray that you put it together in your organized way. I pray that you speak through me from your Holy Spirit. Do not have any of my own words, but only yours. We trust you in this, in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, I'll mention this, uh, and, and perhaps I'll mention a little bit at the end, but the um, Lord has laid on my heart ever since California, ever since I was out there for the last couple of weeks, and this is in regards to spiritual warfare. But I'm going to be announcing a fast. I knew that he wanted me to do it. I had been praying about this for a while, 
But what I didn't realize is he wanted me to present it to the church and ask that you guys be involved in this. And I don't want to, want to scare you if, if you're not, if you're not, if you've never fasted or anything else. It's not a fast necessarily like what, what, uh, I would do or anything else because it's 40 days. It'll be a long fast. But what I'm going to ask is that you fast from something that you normally do. That you normally, I mean, you could fast one meal a day. Or you could fast, now this one would be tough for me, but fast from TV. I think I'd rather not eat <laughs> than, than miss my Fox News. But we're, I'm going to tell you more about it. I just wanted to get that in your brains while we're moving forward because I believe this is a key to victory. It's a key to victory. Jesus said when, when the disciples tried to cast out this, this demonic spirit that, that had epilepsy and, and they couldn't do it, and the father came and said, you know, if you'll do it, if you could do it, please do it. You know, Jesus' answer was, if I could do it, of course I could do it. And he did it. And the disciples asked him, why couldn't we do it? And he said, well, there are some that require prayer and fasting. See, there are some demonic spirits, there are some activities that require a greater focus of warfare. That's why we need to understand what fasting is about. And, it, and, and perhaps the Lord will put this together to where we do a session on fasting. As we get to the point where we're talking about the weapons that we use that God gives us to fight this war, Fasting is one of them. So I just I wanted to get that in your brain because of uh, what, what God is going to do even through this, this series. So let's kind of set the scene from last week, right? Last week we left off, week, the creation was completed, man and Satan in the Garden of Eden, Satan has fallen. Okay, man hasn't fallen yet as of where we left off last week. But man is in the garden. He's tending the garden. Remember last week we talked about the fact that this was probably up to a 100 years that man was in the garden before he fell. So this was not a new thing. Like he was created first day and second day he fell. It wasn't like that. I mean, that would be pretty sad. <laughs> I think he held on for a while. And, and so, so we have Satan also in the garden, as we talked about last week. He said that that serpent who was, or the, that that uh, the devil who was in the garden, okay, and and so that's the scene that's going on. So Satan, as a fallen angel, remember he took a third with him, but he's in the garden. So now he decides to go after man out of jealousy. And I want to explain what that means because it's important to understand as we go through the history of this warfare, it's important to understand why. Why are we in, in, in this battle that, you know, we, we kind of feel like we're in the middle of, right? Why is this battle even going on? Why can't God just decide to destroy Satan, get rid of him, and we don't have to deal with all this? Why? That's why we're going through the history, because what I, what I hope is laid out before you is the reason why Satan has any power at all. Because, see, it makes me mad that he does. But what makes me more mad is when people don't understand that he has power, or that he, he can do what he can do against a Christian. And we're the ones that give him permission to do it. See, that's crazy in my mind, but yet we do. So it's important to understand the history of this. So until man, and you gotta, you got to kind of try to look through the eyes of, of, at this time, Lucifer, or Lucifer before he fell. But from his mind, until man, nothing was created greater or more beautiful than Lucifer. Man was created a little lower than the angels, but will be lifted higher through Jesus Christ. So, so when, when Satan, he was the worship leader in heaven. He was the, the angel that covereth. He was over all the angels. He was God's greatest creation until man. See, then he created man, 
and jealousy began to form in Satan's life. And then when that iniquity was found in his heart, that jealousy, that pride, he had this jealousy of wanting to get the very worship and adoration that God was getting because of this new creation, then that's when he fell. So now he is going after man. I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to be, all throughout, we're going to kind of hop around to different places. So again, in your bulletin, you have that section where it says notes. So I just want you to write down, just jot down the references so you can go to them later if, if you don't, you know, if you want to dig into this a little deeper. But Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 is where we're going to begin here. Long ago, and, and by the way, this, I know it doesn't say it's Paul. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, but what he does is he begins to give a lesson to the Hebrew people to the Jews, about creation. And Hebrews is all about what, what God did throughout his creation in sending Jesus Christ. But verse 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This is the Old Testament. But in these days, in these last days, as Jesus, remember at the point of this writing, Jesus has come died, rose again, and is in heaven. So he says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. It was because Jehovah became a man that man could be lifted higher than the angels. Do you understand, and this is important to get here, Jesus, as the Son of God, became a man. He did not do anything in this life as God. That's important to understand. That's crazy to think that. Well, of course he did. He he was God. That's That's why he did this, did this, did this. That's why he could do all those miracles. Because he's God. You know what? That's not true. That's not what the Bible says. He did nothing as God. But he did all through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as we would do the same thing. If we let the Holy Spirit work in our lives, we have the same capability as Jesus Christ. He told us that. Now understand, we don't have the same righteousness. But we have the same capability because we, as people, serve the same God that he served. He became man, was brought a little lower than the angels, to bring mankind to a place of honor. And that's what he did. So because of Jehovah becoming a man, Jesus, man could be lifted higher than the angels. That's an important distinction between man and angels. Very important to understand. Okay, Remember, angels were created for service and worship. But man was created for fellowship and God's glory. We were created in the image of God. We just read that Jesus was created... In the image of God. But what did it say? In the exact imprint of God. Man was created in the image of God. This imprint. And I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. Says this. Actually, I'll go 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
Now, now, by the way, this is crazy to think about this. Okay, when it says our, it's the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's all three talking together. Let's make man in our image. Okay, so this is Christ, the Son, Jehovah God, who is saying let's make man in our own image, knowing full well he was going to infuse himself into that very creation. Because he would have to. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. And in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That word image there in the Hebrew is the word salem, S-E-L-E-M. And what that means is a shade of, an illusion of, a resemblance, a representation, or an image. See, it's different than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, we had just read, was made the exact imprint. See, he wasn't just an image of. He was an identical copy of. So there's a difference. See, Jesus Christ was born of the Holy Spirit. He was not born of man's seed, like we are. But you understand what's going on here is that, and you you can imagine the jealousy that Satan began to have. Because he created man in his own image. What does that mean? Does that mean that we look like him? I think it goes so much deeper than that, it's not even funny. Because if you see how angels are described in the Bible, it says they are described to look like men. Okay, so would Satan be jealous because that one looks like more of a man than me? No. See, it's got nothing to do with looks. And, and when we think of image, we think of, of outward. But see, that's not what God was creating. Remember, angels were created for service. As a matter of fact, let's look at Hebrews. Go back to Hebrews 1, verse 13. Remember, angels are made for service, and man was made for fellowship. Verse 13, Hebrews 1 says this, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? And then verse 14 is really what I want you to get. Are they not, talking about the the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Ooh, that would sting a little if you're the greatest creation of all. And see, God knew he was going to create man before he created the angels. But the angels didn't know that. He created the angels before he created the rest of the universe. And so what they're looking at is they're, you know, you can imagine saying, I'm the greatest Creation God has done. I'm over all these, you know, probably literally millions of angels. He's number one. He's leading worship. He's doing all this. And then, boom, man is created and man's created in God's image. So there's more there than just looks, right? But you can, you can begin to imagine how Satan, at that time Lucifer, was beginning to become jealous. Why? Because he's a ministering spirit. He's sent out to serve. That's why he was created. I want you to turn then back to 1 Corinthians 13. And we're going to understand what it means by being created in the image of God. It's this idea of love. If you look all throughout the Word of God, you never see an instance where an angel has the capacity for love. 
They have the capacity for obedience. They have the capacity for service because that's how they were made. That's the function that they were made for. You never see a capacity for love. But yet man was created with love. I'm going to suggest to you that is what he means by image. That we are created in his image. We are created with this capacity to love that the angels were not. And then look at the difference between us who were created with this capacity for love and Jesus Christ, also a hundred percent man. He was created with this capacity for love, but it was the exact imprint of the Father. See, his love was not tainted by bad blood, if you will. His, he, he was not tainted by sin. He was not tainted by the, the difficulties that we have. His love was perfect. But he was the exact imprint of that. The exact imprint. And that's critical to understand. But we were created with this capacity for love. Let's read 1 Corinthians 13, we'll start at verse 1. I'm just going to read through this because this is so important to get. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. You see, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For right now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, which understand the perfect is Jesus Christ in his second coming. When the perfect comes, because he is the only one that is perfect, the only man, and that's important to understand. The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face when Jesus Christ comes back again. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So understand the greatest thing, the very thing that Jesus, as the Son of God, inserted himself into his own creation for, was this idea of love. The very reason we were created was love. That's what everything was wrapped around. That was the reason why the Father sacrificed his own Son, was for love. He wanted love from me. He wants love from you. He wanted love. And you can imagine from Lucifer's standpoint, he doesn't have the capacity for love. He doesn't understand love. He has no knowledge of what love is, so he doesn't understand why is this fellowship so sweet. When Adam and Eve walk in the garden and they're walking with the Father and they, they just have the greatest time. Why? How? I don't get that. You can imagine what's going on in his mind. Why don't I have that? Why don't, I, why don't they love me? I don't understand love, but I, I want them to treat me like they treat you, God. So iniquity was found in his heart. So it makes sense at this point 
what drove Satan to that jealousy. But then it also makes sense, and I want you to get this, it makes sense that man and woman, mankind, became his target. The very thing that he doesn't understand is the very thing that we were created with. And he hates it. He hates it. See, you have to understand, love and hate are two emotions, and I know they say they're so similar in their passion. But they're opposite in their application. See, Jesus Christ loved us and loves us. Satan hates us. The emotion may be the same. The application is very different in our lives. That's why he comes after us. Therefore, out of jealousy, because of how man was made, Lucifer developed a pride to be lifted as high as God so that he would be the one that was worshipped. When God cast Satan down from heaven as his place of dwelling, remember that's where Satan was. Satan was in heaven before iniquity was found in his heart and he was cast from heaven. It didn't mean he could never come back. Revelation 12.10 tells us he's up there all the time in different capacity. He's up there as our accuser and we're going to get into that. Because that's a real important thing to understand. But he was cast out of heaven as his normal place of living. And he was cast to the earth. And the Bible says he was in the Garden of Eden. So he had access to the Garden of Eden. Right? So he began to focus on mankind. Satan then turned his eyes on man to take everything he could from God. Because he couldn't love, the very emotion that he could pour into was hate. Because iniquity was found in his heart. See, I want you to understand something else. He really had no choice. Because when iniquity was found in his heart, there was no redemption for him. When the angel sinned, it's not like he could say, Oh, I am so sorry. Please forgive me. I'll go back to what I was. You know, let's just kind of forget yesterday. (laughs) He couldn't do that. There is no redemption for angels. They were not created with that capacity. You have to understand they were created as servants. They were created for obedience. And when that obedience was broken, there was no redemption for that. Where does it say that? Let's look, let's pull up Hebrews again. Hebrews chapter 2. Verse 16, Hebrews 2, verse 16 says this, For surely it is not angels that he helps. This talk about, that, about Jesus who came. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Adam. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's why Jesus, when he became a man, he was made man, in every respect as us. The difference was he was born of the Holy Spirit. He was not born with a sinful flesh like we are. But everything that man goes through, he had to go through. He was made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Am I reading the right thing here? Hebrews 2. I think I wrote down the wrong. I wrote down the wrong thing. Because. Oh brother. I have to look it up again. But. But what it says, what it says is that angels are not capable of redemption. They are not to be redeemed. Jesus did not come to cover their sin. The choices that they made, they could not turn back on. 
So you can imagine when, when Satan talked to a third of the angels and he convinced them to, to, to rise up against God, you can imagine when God threw him out of heaven what that did. If you knew you could not turn back, see, we, we're forgiven, right? We can go back and we can ask Jesus Christ to forgive us. If you did not have that capability, what would you do? You would pour everything you have into the hatred that filled you in the first place. See, that's what Satan does. Don't, don't misunderstand. It's not that he hates you a little bit. Or, or that, well, you know, I'll, I'll kind of let you be. I'm not gonna. He hates you. And when you accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, he hates you even more. Bible says that he is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. That word devour there in the Greek is destroy, to rip apart, to take apart piece by piece. That doesn't sound like someone who might let me slide on something. He hates you. And it came because he did not have the possibility of redemption. Why? Because... He did not have faith. They didn't have the capacity for faith. When God made the angels, he was there with the angels. They're in the same dimension as God. Unlike us, they can see him always. And they, again, I want, the biggest thing I want you to get there is the difference between angels and man is they were created for service. Man was created for fellowship. So let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. I know I'm kind of taking you all over here. But this is important to get. I'm trying to establish the why. The why would Satan do this? Why, if he knows what's going to happen to him later, why doesn't he just pull off and say, I'm sorry? Why doesn't he just... You know, for everything he adds to this in terms of his own sin, he's going to burn even harder. So why does he do it? I want to establish in your mind the fact that he hates you. He hates God. He hates Jesus Christ. He wants any victory that he can in our lives. So Genesis chapter 3, this is the fall of man. I want to read... 1 through 15, because it's important to understand how Satan works. So, so man became Satan's target. You know, and, and I gotta believe that there had to be some time that went by here. You know, it wasn't just that Satan was cast out of heaven and came to the earth, went to the Garden of Eden, and boom, okay, an hour's passed, I'm gonna go talk to Eve. It wasn't like that. See, Ephesians 6 says that he is crafty. The wiles of the devil are the strategies of the devil. He is strategic in what he does. See, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows us and he develops strategies to go after us. See, I believe he sat and he watched. And and I believe that he even made this elaborate plan on how to deceive. This wasn't just, hey, I'll just give it a shot. No, he decided how he was going to go after. You ever wonder why he went after Eve? I mean, that, that was a calculated thing for him. It wasn't, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. okay, I'll go after her. Why did he go after her? He went after her because he knew that the man had the authority. And that he could be shut down like that. So as he went after... So this is the fall. Satan is going after mankind. And let's just begin reading here. 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, let me, let me just make a comment here. This is not Satan, by the way. I know he's called the serpent... Okay, but this is not Satan revealing himself and saying, 
you know, to Eve, hey, and start having this conversation. He went through something else. He went through an animal, which clearly the animal spoke because it didn't surprise Eve. And, and there was an enmity between a snake and a woman like there is now. Okay, that came later. But he chose this serpent to speak to Eve. So he chose something of God's creation to affect God's creation. Just like he does today. He uses people, he uses things to affect us in our own lives. And he looks for the weak things in, in this world to do it with. So he notices this serpent, and the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Now, I, I'm not exactly sure all the ramifications of that, but I can tell you that what it meant basically was, was that this animal, this serpent was subtle. It wasn't in your face. It wasn't something that was going to surprise and make her feel off guard. So I'm guessing perhaps this is something that she had conversations with before. I mean, if I lived in a garden for a hundred years, I probably would have had conversations with most all of them. I just can't get past the fact that you could talk to an animal and it talks back to you. But that's what's going on here. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, and, and by the way, what he did was he just said, and I know you've heard this before, he just said a twist of what God said to get her to engage in a way that he could begin to manipulate. Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The second she said that, Satan knew he had her. Because that was a lie. That wasn't what God said. He didn't say you couldn't touch it. In fact, Adam was supposed to take care of it. So I would imagine he had to prune it. He was familiar with this tree. They knew that the tree was good for fruit because it was beautiful. But God said, you cannot eat of it because it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can't eat of it because the day you eat of it, you will die. Not the day you touch it. So she adds that little piece in there. But the serpent said to the woman, verse 4, You will not surely die. And he knew he had her. He hooked her right there. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, there's the key. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. I can't wait to get to heaven to ask God about this. God, can you play that video back for me? Because was, was Adam standing right there the whole time, or was he with her like in the garden? I don't know, because I... I'll have a lot more respect for Adam if he was away somewhere and then came to her. See, because the Bible says Adam was not deceived, but the, the woman was. Then they both, both of their eyes were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord, of God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God, we'll just finish this through, through verse 15. So you understand what's going on here to, to get this picture in your mind. By the way, the Lord knew where they were. He knew what happened. But like a father... I, I, I know when my kids were younger, and, and I know they did something wrong, 
you're thinking in your mind, okay, I, I need to teach them a lesson in this. They need to learn something in this. So, so you begin to talk to them and let them bring it out, right? That's what God's doing. He knew what happened. He said, who told you? Or, but the Lord called the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. He had never experienced fear before. I was afraid because I was naked. He never experienced that before either. And I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? See, that was a rhetorical question for God. He knew the answer to that. But see, it was important for Adam to own up to it. See, that's the first process in redemption. That's the first process in our healing, is us owning up to something that we've done. Adam, did you eat of that? You know, it's, it's, it's like, you know, when, when your child does something, you know they did it, and, but you don't say, you did it. No, did you do that? Because you want them to say, yes, I did, I'm sorry. That's what God was doing here. He's a loving father. And he knew that redemption would be in the works. He knew that before he created them. Then the Lord said to the woman, why is it that, or I'm sorry, verse 12, the man said, the woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. <laughs> and, and I know, I know most, most preachers say, you know, here he was this strong person and he, he's going to, you know, fight for his woman. And then all of a sudden, no, it was her. I really don't believe that's what's going on here. I, I, think, I think this is the two of them with God. And they both realize now the heaviness of what they've done. And in their mind, it just all has to get out there. It just has to get out there. They didn't understand redemption at the time, but they knew love. See, love is what we're created with. So immediately when love is taken away, we have these instincts within us. How do I get that back? You can imagine what Adam and Eve were feeling at this time. They're feeling we just lost the fellowship of God, of our Father. The only thing we've ever known is the, the very place that this love comes from. We just lost it. So, yes, complete truth. Here's complete truth. Complete truth is she did it. <laughs> I'll leave that one alone. Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, and I love how he then focuses on the cause. But just like he's done in other things that we've read in New Testament, where, where remember when Jesus was talking to Peter, but then he talks behind Peter? That's exactly what happens here. He first curses the serpent. Why? Because the serpent had to say yes to Satan. Satan was not his controller. Adam was. See, Adam was put in charge of the whole world, the whole earth. Adam was the authority. Satan could not just jump on into that serpent and take him over because he had no authority to do it. He had to be given authority by that serpent. So that's why Satan, or God goes after the serpent first and declares his judgment on the serpent first. God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now he begins to look beyond the serpent and talk to the real cause, which was Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman. We, we often think that that's really talking about, oh, women don't like snakes. It's got nothing to do with that. I know a lot of women that like snakes. I know a lot of guys that are scared to death of snakes. I love snakes. 
I just don't like spiders. <laughs> I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's something in there. I'll just give you a little hint, but we'll get into it I don't, maybe next week. Um, when he says, between your offspring and her offspring. First of all, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about that bloodline that would bring the, the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, the, the God-man, if you will, that dies on the cross for our sins. But what in the world does he mean when he says, the offspring of Satan? What? Did Satan have kids? Ooh. We'll get into that. Because that's a very, very interesting piece of this warfare. And it's a piece that we fight daily. By the way, I want you to notice verse 15 is the first mention and prophecy of the coming Messiah. So right at the very beginning, Satan is shown that there is a redemptive plan already in place. So it's like God said, this is what's going to happen. Satan knows it's going to happen. So his focus becomes, how do I stop this from happening? Now, I, I don't think Satan's stupid. But in some things, he's just got to be. You know, I, I, I mean, if he thinks he can thwart the plan of God, I mean, by now I think he's probably figured out that he can't. But by then, at this point, I think it was more like drawing the line in the sand to Satan. When God said that, you know, you will bruise his heel, but Jesus effectively will bruise your head or crush your head. I think Satan was just like, yeah, we'll see. Now, I, I think by now, you know, he, he's maybe getting the idea <laughs> that his things are are not working, and that his demise is coming. But he was belligerent. So this was the first mention of the coming Messiah. Now there's a couple things that I want you to understand. Again, uh, this idea of man, of Adam, choosing to do what he did. That's an important part of this warfare that we have to understand because what's happening here is, is a blueprint of what happens to us every day. And we don't even realize it, but it happens to us every day. Man was given the opportunity of choice. He was warned about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's it, and we, we don't need to turn there, but Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 so when, when God created man, he told him about this one thing he couldn't touch. See, that was the choice. For God to receive love, there had to be a choice that man could, could make to choose him or not. If there was nothing that would cause the problems, then that would not have produced the love that God wanted. So let's say it was a hundred years that Adam and Eve were there. Every day that they chose not to eat of that tree was that obedience and love for the Father. They, they loved him. I love him. I'm not going to eat of that. I love him. And, and you could just imagine the Father soaking that in. But there had to be that choice. So he gave them that choice right from the beginning. Adam also, it's important to understand at this point when he was created, Adam was given dominion or authority over all the earth. I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, It's important to understand this. Then God said, and we read this earlier, Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let him have dominion over all the fish of the sea, over all the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth. 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man was given authority. That word dominion is authority over everything. See, this is why Satan went after man. Because Satan was thrown out of heaven. He was cast to the earth. And yet now he's under the dominion of man. He's under the authority of man. He just thought he could be like God. You think he's going to put up with a man being his authority? Not even close. He had to be the dominioning or the, the, the governing power of the earth. So he went after man. But it's important to understand before man's fall, he had the authority. He was given dominion over all the earth. Turn to 1 Timothy 2.14, and we're going to quit here in a second. I just I want to get through this part. Man was given dominion or authority over all the earth. It's also important to understand that Eve was deceived, but Adam was not. 1 Timothy 2, chapter 2, verse 14 says this. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. See, Adam knew what he was doing when he made that choice. He knew what he was doing. He knew the consequences of what he was doing. Now, I don't know if he had some other conversation with God earlier, but he knew he wasn't supposed to eat of the tree. He knew that, that by doing that, he would be placed in the very spot that Eve was placed. Eve could no longer have communion with God. And so Adam's choice was either to be in communion with God and lose the very one that he loves, or to be with her and sacrifice his fellowship with God. And I could just imagine him looking at the two options and thinking, I'm going to trust in God's mercy because I love her. And I'm going to put my place with her and just lay myself at the altar of God and say, by your mercy, have fellowship with us. And that's what he did. He was not deceived. Adam, who has, again, dominion over all the earth, he has the authority of the earth, he gives the title deed to, of the earth to Satan. Now, what does that mean? When we have authority in something, and then we sin, we give that authority to someone else. We give that authority to Satan. When Adam sinned, he didn't just lose his own fellowship with God. He lost the very authority that he was given on the earth. It was like if you had a contract, a deed. That's why I call it a title deed. Let's say you had a deed to the whole earth, and your name's written on it. And it's written up in a scroll. It was like... Adam signed over that title deed and gave it to Satan. And we wonder why he has control in Rome of the entire earth. But don't believe me. Let's look at the scripture. Turn to Hebrews 2 again. Because a man, Adam, gave his authority over the creation to Satan, God's righteous law requires a man like us, to get it back. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 16. For surely... Oh, this, this is the verse that I couldn't find before. For surely it is not angels that he helps, talking about Jesus Christ, but he helps the offspring of Adam. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every, every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sins. That's not what it was, either. Yeah. Okay, well, that's what happens when I have to plan. <laughs> but because man gave his authority over creation, God's required 
a man to get it back. See, in your own life, when you give authority to the enemy, nobody can get it back but you. Do you understand that? If you give the authority to the enemy to reign in your life, like Adam did to Satan over the entire world, it requires you to be redeemed to get it back. I can't come in, as, as a pastor, I can't come in and, and say, okay, Lord, you know, forgive them and don't allow Satan to have any place in their lives in this area. See, I can't do that. I could go to war for you. I can fight for you. But only you can be the one that asks forgiveness. So in a grander scale, that's what happened with Adam. In a grander scale, as Adam gave away the title deed to the earth, he gave it to Satan. It requires another man to come and take it back. But here's the problem. It required a perfect man. See, Adam fell. And it had to be taken back from somebody who had not fallen. So that's why Jesus, or, or the Son, came and was birthed into humankind and given the name Jesus. He had to be to take the title deed back. So what Adam gave was huge. I mean, what he did was huge. And what he did affects us every day. And it was that deception of Satan that really happens today in the same exact way. See, he may have authority over the whole earth, but he has to be given authority in your life. And, and by the way, if, if, if you don't understand or you, you, you don't, well, he doesn't rule the whole earth. Let's look just real fast, and I'm going to close on this. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, I'm going to show you three quick references, and you could just write them down, but I'll read them. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So Satan is the God of this world. In Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2, Ephesians 2, verse 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work at work in the sons of disobedience. So he is the God of this world. He is the prince and the power of the air. And then lastly, turn to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, verse 31 says this, Now is the judgment of this world... And he's talking about a future judgment. But I want you to understand the name he gives Satan. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now, by the way, that's at the end times. So that's not changed. When Satan gave it away, or I mean, when Adam gave it away, Satan has held on to it the entire time. See, when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross for our sins, lived that perfect life, he made the opportunity for us to choose redemption. But he didn't take the authority away from Satan. Trust me, Satan still has it. That's why I read you those three verses. Look them up later. Satan is still in control of this world. He is the prince and the power of the air. He is in control of everything we do. Now that Satan has dominion and authority, he wants to keep it. But he knows that a redeemer will be birthed in mankind that will take back all authority over sin. Remember Genesis 3.15. He said, you will bruise his heel, talking about Satan, to the redeemer. But he said, he will crush your head. The heel is not a death blow, but the head is. Now see, that hasn't happened. He has not followed through with that yet, but it's been done in the spirit world. When, when you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, Satan lost 
You will never, he, he cannot do anything about your soul. He cannot do, or I'm sorry, about your spirit. He cannot do anything about you going to heaven. When you accepted him as Jesus, as Jesus Christ's Savior, Satan can't touch you in that way. So he decides to go after you how he can. See, because the last thing he wants is for you to be a strong testimony for Jesus Christ. So that very real enemy that still is in control of the entire world, he is the prince and the power of the air, he has authority in all these places, he still wants to go after you to stop your voice, to stop your testimony. So this sets the stage of why Satan goes after mankind. Because one, if he can keep them out of heaven, that's, that's his greatest joy, if you could call it joy. That's his number one goal, is to keep people from knowing him, knowing the Father. But if he can't do that, then he wants to ruin their testimony. He wants to take their joy He wants them to think that he is more powerful on this earth than God. And so many times we let him because we don't even believe that he does it. Because we can't see it. We think it's not there. And yet every one of us has representation in our lives of this battle. So now we have this great battle set up in the heavens, and we're the target. Jesus Christ, though, did everything he needed to do to win that battle. The Father sent the Son. He became man. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for our sin. He rose again, and he sits at the right hand of the Father as a man. Even now, he has to stay a man. He is still a man, just like you and I. Why? Because he is the kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Read the book of Ruth. It requires a kinsman redeemer to mankind, a kinsman redeemer to Adam, to come and take the title deed back. See, he hasn't done that yet. Because he hasn't returned again. But he will And up until that point, there is this age that we're in called the church. Where we believe him by faith, not just for salvation, but for living our lives. We believe him by faith to get through the warfare that we're involved with that we don't even realize. And see, there are stages of that. The first thing is understanding there's a war whether you think there is or not. And then engaging and learning how to engage in that warfare. And then when you do, you're on this defensive position. Kind of like a boxer fighting off the enemy but backing up. It's not the best place to be, but at least you're defending yourself. But then in warfare, there comes a switch And this is where the church is. This is where the church needs to understand the position of the church needs to switch from defense to offense. Because the readiness of the bride will never happen unless we switch to offense. I I wish everybody here could go overseas just to see what we see over there. Just believe in what the, the warfare does. But we can't. But you can learn it here if you open your eyes. If you see what he does in your life and just understand that there is a cause and effect to everything. Well, that was just unlucky. No. With God, there is no luck. With God, there is no coincidence. There's cause and effect. There's choice. And there's what we reap when we sow. That's why this message is so important. 
The church needs to get this. They need to get the fact that we're supposed to shift to offense. Because even though he has the title deed to the earth, he was given it by deception. Jesus Christ conquered that when he died on the cross. His blood covers everything. Covers a multitude of sins, the Bible says. When we apply that in our own lives, we gain that authority back that we give away. As a church, we can do that even over land. You know, Satan loves to own land. He loves to control land. But do you know as the church shifts from defense to offense, it's going to start pushing him back. Why? Because we can through Jesus Christ. Just because Satan controls an area does not mean that he's supposed to. Does not mean that the church is not supposed to engage to get him off. If you knew that Satan or a principality or something demonic was on your property, would that bother you? I don't know about you, it would bother me. What if you knew you had the authority to not only make it leave, but make it stay off? That's where the church has to shift to. And this isn't about, you know, getting all wacky and thinking that everything's, you know, being devised of Satan and all this. Because we have choice. But it's important to understand that whether you like it or not, you're in the fight. You could choose to engage or you could choose to just pretend it doesn't happen. Either way, doesn't change what he does. He's going to hit you. You can defend yourself. You can stand up and you can fight through Jesus Christ. Or you can just take the hits and pretend he's not hitting. Doesn't make him not. He'll go after us either way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. We thank you and praise you. God, I just pray that you sink each one of these words in deep, Lord. Deep for what you're doing. Understanding this warfare. God, I pray that we just get this. And that you work that shift in us from defense to offense. Understanding Ephesians 6, the armor that you give us the offensive weapons that you give us. God, help us not to be confused about the enemy's intent. We love you and we thank you that you give us everything that we need to fight him with, to have victory. There is no need for him to have any place in our lives. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.